So growing up, my parents weren't necessarily strict, but there were always pretty clear boundaries. And I have the heart of a people pleaser, so even the thought of doing something that could possibly at some point maybe disappoint them was enough to keep me home from the after Friday night football game parties and also the curfew that followed me around even through college. Yes, college, because that's what happens when you live at home for those four years. But it kept me from pushing too many lines. I'm the youngest of three with two older brothers and being the only girl meant stricter dating rules, which honestly is a conversation for another day because why didn't they have dating rules, you know? But the most basic rule was no dating until you're 16. In hindsight, this rule was actually a great comfort because it just flat out removed the pressure to have a boyfriend. I mean, not that there was like a well-worn path to my front door trodden over and over by prospects. You know, I was more of the, the best friend to these guys. They would call to talk about the girls they wanted to date to get advice on what to do. And yeah, I said call because back in the olden days, you only had a certain number of texts to send per month and every call had to be after 7 p.m. Otherwise, you were using your cell phone minutes. And no one wanted to call your landline because who wants to go through a parent to get who you actually want to talk to? And if you don't know what a landline is, it's it's a phone that's like on a wall or it has a, a cord out of it that connects to the wall. Also, my dad was always on eBay at night, so the phone line was tied up. I don't know. If, if you don't understand anything I just said, maybe ask a parent and just let me live in my ever aging memories. But anyway, year 16, finally rolled around with a gold satin with a sunroof and automatic seatbelts. I was in the game, finally, which meant I could go to the movies with the guy I liked and, you know, subtly place my arm on the armrest, refusing to move it so that my hand was available for two and a half hours in case he just happened to want to hold my hand. I could go over to his house and from the couch in his bonus room, watch Mel Gibson discover aliens in the movie signs. It took one month into my 16th year to secure my first boyfriend and begin playing chicken with my curfew. I vividly remember standing at my car talking to him when I was about to drive home and my dad calling to see where I'm at. And I was like, dad, I'm in the car on my way. But you could hear the dinging of the car. I got grounded for, for that one. Not my best decision. But then summer came. And he was heading off to church camp in Florida. And could we really make it six days long distance? Obviously, yes. We had three months of commitment. Oh, poor, sad, naive 16-year-old Callie, who just sat on her bed and passed the time playing snake on her Nokia while waiting for calls that didn't come. You know, I knew something was off. There was this shifting that was taking place, but I was too embarrassed slash prideful to talk to anyone about it, to reveal those deep-rooted insecurities about how I looked, what I weighed, if I was funny or charming, or any of the actual underlying reasons to the eroding relationship. Now listen, I know you might be driving your car or folding your laundry right now or on a walk and you're just rolling your eyes like, come on, that was forever ago. We're so quick to write off these like teenage pains that come from this kind of heartbreak. But allow me to remind you, for so many of those who are coming behind us, this is the first real pain they'll experience. These heartbreaks in our high school years defined the feeling that was mentioned in all the songs we were singing, the shows we were watching, the friends we were advising. I can reference Avril Lavigne, why, why you have to be so complicated. I feel like that's what I was singing at that point. But, you know, a piece of our heart, however big or small in the long run, it was broken off. And while the jagged edges of the break would round out and soften with time, that chip would remain in the form of these hidden insecurities and anxieties, that low-grade hum of doubt in the background of all future relationships. 
So in that instance, to quiet my mind, I did what my mom probably spent years hoping I would instinctively learn to do as she whispered, yelled in my ear every Sunday morning that I tried to sit down and worship. I bet Jesus wished he could sit down when he was walking up the hill with your cross on his back. And let me tell you, when you hear that, you stand right back up. I promise you that. But I know these instances when she's trying to teach me what it means to follow Jesus. I know she probably wanted me to do exactly what I did. I opened my Bible and I started reading. I was in Psalm 139, which is full of reminders about God's intentionality in creating every single part of you physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally, all of it specific and unique to you. And I spent the whole summer reading that Psalm over and over, learning about the character of God and his work on me and in me, shaping my own character. I wanted to call that boy who went to camp and turns out found another girl to fill my absence. I wanted to tell him, you know, it's okay. I understand. It was hard. But since you're back, you know, we can go back to just driving around in the Saturn with the sunroof open, listening to John Mayer make room for squares. But because my heart and thoughts had been buried in Psalm 139, learning my purpose, God's intentions for me, his vision for my future, I could hear the Holy Spirit quietly whispering the word more in those moments of wanting to choose less. You've probably heard it quietly in your own life when you've allowed someone to make you feel small. I specifically remember picking up the clothes in my room one day because that's how desperate I was for distraction at this point and saying out loud what my sixth grade Sunday school teacher had said years before, immediate obedience brings blessings. See, even then, just at 16, I was being taught about God's faithfulness about his desire to shape a life of surrender as the foundation of a life spent doing his kingdom work. I mean, even last week, I was reading Jenny Allen's book, Restless, which is worth the purchase, I promise you. And at the very beginning, she lays the groundwork by asking, are you ready to surrender? To say, God, whatever it is, I'm up for it. I want what you want, only what you want. And while I was sitting there, I'm specifically thinking to myself, yeah, I can do that. That's great. But then what else? What will it end in? I'll do that if it ends in clarity in the next step, if it ends in the more that I feel pulled toward. But the very root of surrender is saying, yes, use me no matter what's next. I'm laying every part of me down in spite of not knowing what could be next. Surrender may feel like a non-action, but surrendering to God's plan for our lives without limitations or ulterior motives can also be called faithfulness. And in the 15 plus years since picking up the discarded clothes and and echoing the Sunday school lesson, I've continued honing my faith in God's faithfulness. If you're a follower of Jesus for any amount of time, we can find ourselves believing faithfulness is a natural byproduct of a relationship with him. And while I believe it is to a degree, faithfulness is something I've learned to fight for because the alternative is despair, hopelessness, defeat. You can have faith, but faithfulness is an active engagement with Jesus. It's a continual surrender to the best plan, to his plan. The one that's more than any of your positioning, pushing, pulling, forcing your kind of okay plan can actually ever provide you. At the end of 2 Timothy, Paul is in prison. He's wrapping up his letter to Timothy and he's teaching him how to lead. And it leaves him with some final words that we'll pick up in verse 7. He said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race and I have remained faithful. 
I've heard this verse so many times growing up in church. I mean, you probably have too. It's honestly an anthem for so many. But think about how Paul describes a life poured out at the feet of Jesus. He had fought the good fight, the fight that was worth it, the fight that required energy and focus, repetition, learning to throw the punches that will land, being the last one standing in the ring with fear and bitterness and insecurity and disappointment all at his feet. Faithfulness kept him fighting. So he fought the fight and he finished the race. He had the endurance, the discipline to finish. He knew when to speed up and when to slow down, when to push past and when to keep pace, when to run with everyone and when to take the lead. The race feels long by our standards, but it's really only a moment in the eyes of eternity. Faithfulness kept his feet moving one in front of the other, knowing that time was short. Paul says that through the fight, through the race, when every swing and every mile came with a reason to sit down, a reason to stand on the sidelines, when the weariness set into his bones, he remained faithful. When his thoughts and his feelings curved his back and hung his head, he remained confident in what he hoped for and assured of what he could not see. Hebrews says that is what faithfulness is. In the final verses of 2 Timothy, Paul shares the moments he was primed for despair. Those who had been with him were all gone. He was sitting in the deep, dark hole that served as a prison, asking for a coat and books and papers to write on. He writes about those who have heard him, the loneliness that's pressing in. In verse 16, he says, everyone has abandoned me. So reading that, I was like, okay, but Paul, listen, just three verses earlier, you're writing about how to finish well, what to focus on, how to keep going. So what's, what's the difference? What's going on? What changed? Because I mean, I get mood swings, just, I mean, ask Ryan about midway through every month, but why such a switch in his writing? Secluded in a prison, Paul had plenty of time with his own thoughts, isolated, alone. And that's how the enemy likes to find us sitting in ourselves, the empty spots in our souls, creating dense walls around our hearts. You know, Paul most likely took breaks in writing these letters. The length alone leads to that conclusion. You know, I've taken no less than four breaks in writing this over the past hour and a half. The thing about time is it can heal your pain or it can grow your pain. The only difference is what we choose to think about during the time between. You know, that little bit of time between when something happens and your thoughts start and when you take action. I find myself using that time to assign intentions and motives to what happened. Well, she only got that because, and he could only say that because, well, of course she can get that, drive that, go there. They aren't texting me back. I bet it's because, or they wanted to hurt me. Living in these assumed scenarios, it steals time and it's time we don't have faithfulness says, instead of assuming the worst, I'm going to claim the best. I'm going to claim the promises of the one who is the author and perfecter of my faith. Faithfulness is only developed with full daily surrender to the will of Jesus for you, knowing you might not know what part you play, but he'll clarify that through your faithfulness. We are in pursuit of a prize no one here can give us. What we're looking for won't come in a title, a bank balance, a stage, a number on a scale, a raise, a like, or a comment. 
We find our lives when we lay them down. I just sang that in a moment of worship. Ultimately, it just means you will find yourself in surrender because it stops being about yourself. So when I don't know what to do next, I'll choose surrender. I can't think of a moment I've regretted choosing surrender. Choosing the words that brought rest and giving up the pressure to figure it out to the one who has already figured it out. Jesus, my life is yours. My heart, my desires, the pressure, the want, all of it is right here at your feet. And I'll stay here too, trusting you to make the way that I can't make. After Paul shares the pain of loneliness and abandonment in verse 16, he writes in the very next verse, but the Lord stood with me and gave me strength. One translation says the Lord strengthened and empowered me. The best way to cultivate faithfulness It's to remember his. Many of you reached out after our episode with Tony Collier last week saying you needed those words in this season because you feel stuck or trapped. Some are trying to find clarity in the disappointment of a workplace or a career choice. Some feel trapped in grief and fear after a miscarriage. Some are seeing their marriage cracking at the foundation. Some know the pressure to decide what's next, not knowing what next looks like. And some are not navigating this call for more, but it makes you feel selfish or prideful asking for more. This is when you fight harder, you run faster, you remain faithful. Remind yourself of the pictures of faithfulness he's already painted in your life. Why would he stop now? His faithfulness isn't on a quota or a timer. It doesn't run out or bow to doubt. His faithfulness is his character and it doesn't change. I find myself most mornings not always enthusiastically, on my face at the feet of Jesus, asking for his words that will move me forward. But what he gives me are the words that prove him faithful. Reminders that my prayers, they aren't ones of surrender. What he wants is a prayer of surrender instead of a prayer of demand. I've had to ask him to check the motives of my heart, make my intention only to add another brick to the building of your kingdom and to make the way for the work to continue and just allow me to play whatever role he wants for me in it. Not the role I want, the role he wants. Because I can say he has never let me down and he never will. You know, you can say it too. Even if you don't see it right now, even if it feels untrue right now, He is faithful to finish the work he began in you. And in case you might be wondering, I never did call that first boyfriend again. About a year later, I started dating someone else. He was my best friend. And then somewhere along the way, the narrative shifted and I wanted him to be my best friend and my boyfriend. We dated a couple of years and then he went to go play baseball about six hours away. And, you know, I'd already seen this story play out before. My insecurities and anxieties got big, all of my past spilling into my present. But all the stories don't have the same endings, even if they sound an awful lot alike. God's more creative than that. He's more faithful than that. We dated seven years, and now he's the one outside the window right now, putting safety goggles on our three-year-old before starting the weed eater. And He'll be the one who comes in and asks if he needs to keep the kids busy a little longer so I can finish what I feel like God's called me to do here with no one told me what he's called me to do right now on behalf of his kingdom and on behalf of you. 
So yeah, when I'm fighting for faithfulness, I'll claim all the ways he has already been faithful. And I'll finish this letter to you, just like Paul finished his letter to Timothy. May the Lord be with your spirit and may his grace be with all of you.